0: Hi, and welcome to The Second Chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slack Home Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. If you're enjoying The Second Chapter, remember to leave us a rating or review. It helps others to find us, and then they can enjoy it too. This week I'm speaking with Janet Sternberg. Janet has led a very full life, personally and professionally, and she's certainly not finished yet. She's survived cancer and earthquakes, is a fine art photographer, a writer of literary books, a maker of theater and films, and an educator. In this part 1 episode, I talked to Janet about her early passion for writing, her pioneering book, The Writer on Her Work, which was called groundbreaking, a landmark. Her love for New York and why she left it for LA.
1: What we as the women let's just say of the writer on her book. had a sense of mission, and the mission was women's voices, because they had not been heard. Hi, Janet. Thanks so much for joining me today. How are you? I am very well, and thank you for asking me to join you.
0: Yes, this is so exciting. I love speaking to someone on a completely, completely different time zone. You're all the way in LA and I'm in London. So it's bright and early in your morning and late in my afternoon here.
1: (laughs) Oh, I wondered how it is that you look so bright eyed. Somehow or other, I had you placed elsewhere. London, wow.
0: So you're here in the second chapter because you've had some very interesting chapters in your life. My first question that I'd love to know If you're looking over your life so far, what would your chapters be if you were putting your life into chapters?
1: Chapter one, it would be the same as everybody else's growing up. I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, an only child, and I think we'll leave it at that and go to chapter two. Chapter two has me dropping out of college, getting on a bus, and going to where. Deep down, even at that age, where I knew I wanted to be, and that is New York City. I wanted to, Mm -hmm. at that point, get involved with filmmaking, and I did, and worked for public television for a number of years, three or four years, helping to produce or producing films. Chapter 2 was a very rich time in my life. I got to do films that are about things I really cared about. I did one on the farm workers' theater, El Teatro Campesino. When I say did, I meant directed and produced. And a short one on Virginia Woolf, mm-hmm. whose work I love. So very rich time. Met my first husband. We're still back there. We're going on now to Chapter 3, Also Rich. I started writing again after a long silence. And at that point, my day job, because I've always had day jobs by and large, my day job was not at public television. I directed something called Writers in Performance at the Manhattan Theatre Club, which was a way of presenting literature on stage without dramatizing it without turning it into more than it is, but finding ways, for example, a tribute to a writer where I would bring in people who might know that writer and have films and have readings. So it was producing events that were literary, and I Mm -hmm. loved doing that. And I was teaching. I've always had multiple things. You can see that I'm focusing quite a bit On my work life. You can ask me personal life because this next chapter will begin with divorce. I'm not sure Mm. I would put that as a chapter heading, but it then entered into a phase that had quite a bit of despair in it at the beginning. At that point, I realized that the jobs that I had did not have some very basic things like health insurance and that Mm. I needed all of that. So I actually got quite a good job at the New York Council for the Humanities, which is a place that gave grants for events that were public but were about or in some way depended on the ideas of the humanities, English, and all the rest of that history. And so I got to know a lot. I like knowing a lot. I didn't know about a lot of the things when I first got the job. And somewhere in there, I had an idea. I thought I would like to do a conference on how film and filmmaking might relate to history because they were always kept apart in grant-making worlds. But essentially, the activities have much in common, like telling a story. And so I went Mm -hmm. with a colleague to look for a grant. I went to a foundation. There was a young man there. And we started talking. And I have this memory of bookends. There was somebody on either side of me and of their falling away. And so we were talking about films. Do you like this person? Do you like that person? To cut to the chase, six years later, I married him. So there we have a period (laughs) of life in New York. And because we both were working at foundations and both of us helped avant-garde filmmaking, avant-garde's the wrong word, but experimental work across the arts. Now, I have forgotten... Mm -hmm. Do I get a chance to go back to something very important in an earlier chapter? Because it's going to come into this one.
0: Uh, Don't worry. I have questions about these earlier chapters anyway.
1: (laughs) Okay, good. Good. In any case, I should say that I was in New York during the best years I think one could be in New York. So I feel very fortunate being in the cultural life, being in, and here we come to the thing I forgot, the world of women making artwork of various kinds. I was part of a number of groups of women where we were really talking very beautifully and deeply about personal life, about professional life, about what it means to write, the doubts, the fears. And I went to a bookstore because I thought that somewhere there had to be a book that actually captured a quality of this kind of Talking And there wasn't. This was 1978. Mm-hmm. There wasn't. And I wrote a proposal to that went to Norton, the wonderful publisher, that I will now say has kept the book I'm about to tell you about in print for 40 years. Amazing. And the archives have just been shipped off to the that Harry amazing. Ransom Center. Because what I ended up doing is not interviewing, not whatever. I basically commissioned essays from writers I thought had a lot to say, writers I admired, and I asked them to be speculative, to be personal. And I think because it turned out this was the first book of its kind, because it was the first, they they responded with beautiful essays. Nobody had asked them that question. What does it feel like? What is it? Is it to be a contemporary and, in this case, very diverse in every sense group of women so that was called the writer on her work Mm -hmm. and that was pre-divorce post-divorce I didn't have a whole lot of time to write or make books I did have a lot of time through my job of going around and talking about a variety of things including my book and including the creative life of women. And that was quite terrific. But at a certain point, I was going, oh, my God, I've got to get back to what I think of as myself. And the first step was going back to Norton and saying there has been a change in the landscape, and that is it's no longer women from the United States who are speaking and thinking about all of this, but it's international. So there's a second book, and that was in that period Mm -hmm. of time. And it's uh, volume two, same title.
0: You mentioned that you came back to writing and that obviously this book stemmed from a love of writing and women writers. However, Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I dug up on you that I thought was really interesting was a story from your childhood, which was going to see Fantasia. And asking your parents when you got home for a pen and paper to write down your thoughts. So writing, despite the fact that it seems like that kind of has come in and out of your life, was something that you responded to at a very
1: early age, I assume. You are right, Christian. I think I have always been a writer, but that doesn't mean that I always wrote, by which I mean, whether it was work jobs or... At times, lack of confidence, uh, a variety of things that kept me from fully investing in that. I'm a little embarrassed to think that my first writing was, oh, I love this movie so much. When it comes to the writer on her work, you talked about these beautifully
0: crafted essays. Was there anything that surprised you? Things that you got back that you went, oh. Especially because you mentioned maybe not having the confidence to write. And I would imagine that, especially in 1978, there was probably a lot coming from women that maybe they weren't encouraged to do something like that. Even now, that's the case. So was there anything in these essays that reflected that as well?
1: Yes. First of all, I should add, with a big parenthesis, that during those years, I was in poetry workshops because poetry is my first love, and I have published a book of poetry. I did not walk away from writing, but it had to assume somewhat of a backseat. In terms of the essays, there were lots of surprises because I wanted them. When I spoke with the writers and I edited all the pieces, I specifically said, feel free, and they did. Maxine Hong Kingston, who wrote The Woman Warrior, wrote a kind of prose poem about, I don't want to try to recreate it, who can recreate a poem, but it was a surprise and very much about having a kind of vision of what writing could be which reminds me how in the second book, Ursula Le Guin said, I surprised myself. I was sitting on the beach, and this came out. And this was actually a multi-page poem about being a woman and being a writer and very thoughtful and far-ranging. So I wanted those surprises, I did not write a piece of my own because at that point I said to myself, oh, I really don't like those anthologies where, Fay of poetry, where the editor puts a poem of his or her own in. And it always seems as though they're shoveling something in for their own ego needs. And I didn't want to be that person. Mm. However, I did write introductions, and I think they do stand the test of time. I know that in part because Norton published a 20th anniversary edition of the first book, and I had occasion to write about it for Women's Review of Books, among other places. And I interviewed some young women who were friends of mine, at that point, I was teaching, so they were either students or former students. And they said that, yes, the book still mattered to them. And I do still get emails from people about it, low these 40 years later, because it does have an authenticity. The key thing that these young women said, and I think this is so wonderful, she said it really – she had such a different time now – Then you all had such a romance with your work. Isn't that wonderful? And she was right, because there was a period of time when vocation and doing it was just so important. And so important to think of it in those years, we are talking 70s, early 80s, as part of not a movement, but mm-hmm. a cohort of other women who were writing. And of course, these books matter to men, too, because they are so much about the creative process. What do you think has
0: changed this? I'm oh, sorry, I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent, but that comment's really interesting. So I'm wondering what you think, what has changed with that sort of love and romance with your work? Oh,
1: should we talk about it for me or for the world? That's a question for you. Both. For me, I still have it. Yeah, I do. I do. If you still have it, what do you think has happened in the world? The people I was talking with were about, at that time, maybe 30 years younger, maybe a little bit more than that. And I think they felt that the demands of practicality superseded anything else. You can't make a living as a writer. You can't really make a living as an artist unless you're a superstar. And so I think at that period, the notion of that's the period where, where there were a whole lot of MBAs, there were a whole lot of young lawyers, and that is wonderful. But I do think that the world was asking, and when I say the world, that's a highly provincial way of saying it, I really mean the United States, was asking for a, a greater concentration on having a life being perhaps less intense. As you can see, the writer on her work is also a book about intensity. And perhaps as we mm-hmm. moved around the a period into the world of computers, Everything changed. It doesn't mean that people were not writing. In fact, it made it much easier to write, but it also made it much easier to do everything. And so the everything world opened up for young women. And I think when I think back on those women, they're still working and they're still writing, at least two of the three. One is a photographer, one is a writer, and they do still have those feelings. So I think when they said it, it was more about the quality they found that then affirmed what I felt in the books. It was an affirming statement rather than, I'm not so sure we have it now, even though they may have felt it at that time because... They were young and they were trying to make their way in the world. I just
0: think it's interesting because I do feel like I talked to so many women who are probably about the age that we, that you're speaking of, that we've been living through that time. And so many of us went a more practical route, I think, because like you said, the world or the United States or somebody was looking for this practicality and Because of going a more practical route and maybe denying other, you know, the writing passions or the artistic passions, so many of them, that's why they've changed. They realize, wait a minute, there's more that I want to be doing. And maybe that practical route was what I needed to do at the time, but isn't so much what I want to be doing
1: anymore. Part of what I think we, my generation, and these books felt was allied with the politics of our moment. There's no accident that we came Mm -hmm. out of the sense of possibility that the 60s gave to many of us. And here I'm really not talking about all the nuances which we could go into the Vietnam War and protesting against it. I don't mean to, to use my earlier word, romanticize those times, but... What they did have, and what we as the women, let's just say, of the writer on her work, let's just use them as a group, we had a sense allied to vocation mm-hmm. of mission. And the mission was women's voices because they had not been heard. I want to quote you something I just love. For the 20th anniversary, Norton asked Julia Alvarez, the novelist, to write a new introduction. And she tells a story. It was about coming from the Dominican Republic, feeling strange, not used to the United States, getting a fellowship to the writers, not writers, artists, quote unquote, colony, Yado, going there feeling she had no right there. She was just everybody else was more accomplished or whatever. We all know feelings like that at times in our lives. And she was in her room mm-hmm. and heard the sound of a vacuum cleaner. Went outside just to see. Turns out that the vacuum cleaner was from the Dominican Republic and that the staff at Yado pretty much was all from the Dominican Republic. And she spent a lot of time in the kitchen with them. And that ultimately became the basis of her first book. She then says, when Janet Sternberg published the writer on her work, it was the sound of a thousand vacuum cleaners in the halls of the Western canon. I just love that. That's a um, <laughs> mission achieved. That was the dream.
0: You had this love affair with New York. And I would love to know, because I think we're going through the chapters, and I know that New York part of your life ended. What spurred the move to LA?
1: That that takes us right back to the next chapter. In the, give or take, in the mid-80s, still in New York, I had cancer. And I went through months of very rough, tough chemo, it's always rough, tough. But they didn't have ports then, so essentially the veins in my arm are pretty much burned out. And uh, then I had went through the whole thing, mastectomy, etc. And I realized New York is hard. It's a hard place to not be well. And my job at the time, the same job for the humanities, was at Park Place. And for you New Yorkers who may be listening, you may know, that's the lowest point in the subway. You have to go up so many stairs. I needed the job, and I arranged my life so that I'd be sick on the weekends and on Monday. But then just getting up those stairs, can I make it? after You know, in the middle of chemo, just... The weakness one feels, and the crosstown bus and the noise. Now, this sounds silly and maybe a bit precious, but you wrap it all up and you come to a sense of suddenly New York felt hard. One more thing, and then the real thing. The other thing was I stopped seeing New York. It kind of dulled for me, and that was very unexpected. But the big thing is that. One night, this man, Steve, who I was not yet married to, came home and said, I've been offered to try out for a job as president of California Institute of the Arts, CalArts Arts." in Los Angeles. And he was sure I would say, oh, instead, I remembered that all the interesting proposals, that not all, many of the interesting proposals that have crossed my desk had somebody from CalArts as a reference or part of it. And it was always the most interesting part. So you put hard, not seeing a new life, the possibility. And I said, yes, so... We went there. It was a complete talk about surprise because Steve had been a professor and then a uh, program officer at a foundation. So to go from there to being president of a college was an unimaginable leap. The imaginable part is that CalArts is unique. It has all the arts, and it is devoted to experimental making. And all the students are considered artists from the minute they open the door. And here comes a return all the way back to where we started, because the person, unlikely, who started CalArts was Walt Disney. The very Walt Disney, with all of the things that are (laughs) negative, who made Fantasia. Fantasia. And what is Fantasia? Fantasia, I believe, <laughs> yes. is an early vision of Cal Arts, all the arts synthesized. So the child that I was and the woman I was really were extremely well suited. He got the job and we moved to Los Angeles. Before we got to CalArts, the faculty interviewed me, and I did talk about that early Fantasia experience, but we now go to a chapter called The Woman Who Did Everything, or to use a common title, The Woman Who Did Too Much. We Mm. did move out there. We did get married and moved out there. Two weeks before we got married, I had a recurrence of cancer. This was... Fortunately the local pathology it had not metastasized so some mm-hmm. 30 plus years later I'm here but I had a big decision to make do I stay in New York with my doctors or do I go forward into whatever is recommended for life in LA and I said to myself I'm on a train going west go I did And before we did this, I did some research on presidents' wives. And there were two models. One was the one who was, we're talking now male presidents. The world has changed since then. Mm. Model one, the person who basically was never there, just did her work elsewhere and turned up on the funerals or whatever. Number two is the helpmate who sacrificed everything. So I was going to find an in-between place, the problem with an in-between place is that it means both. I was going to do everything I could for the college and for the success of our lives there, and that was quite a lot. At the same time, I had the contract for the writer on her work, too. I had a contract with a foundation to do media for them, I was teaching, there were two or three more things I'm not going to mention, and I was doing daily radiation and I had to drive there and I hadn't driven in years. I drove every day, probably running the risk of killing people on the way in the Los Angeles. It was a hard way to become an L.A. driver.
0: As a former New Yorker, one of the things that has always dissuaded me from the idea of moving to L.A. is
1: (laughs) suddenly having to
0: drive again. So I can imagine.
1: (laughs) As I say in another book, uh, now I'm a cowgirl. I love to drive. I love to go down the canyons and curve and swerve. But there was a learning curve, let us say. I will simply say those first years from 88 to 94 were remarkable because one we had, and I say we, but this is really my husband's doing. I was quite involved with the life of the college, but I, this is definitely his his work. The school was going downhill and was going out of business. It was borrowing money from the endowment. Something had to happen. And that happening was our putting everything we had into this experience. Here comes the kicker, the earthquake. In 1994, oh. six years After we got there, we cleaned our glasses on New Year's Eve and said, it's safe. 17 days later, the college, the campus was in ruins and was red-tagged. And for those of you who don't know what that means, it means you cannot enter, period. It was the Northridge earthquake, and we were very close to the epicenter. So it was starting all over again, and you see why it is a chapter in its own right. And again, I will cut to the chase. School went on in thirteen different sites around Los Angeles. The campus of Lockheed, that where they developed the stealth bomber, was the film school. In any case, it went on. It but it was life or death because had people had the, had it not been. Restored and rebuilt, people weren't going to come back.
0: My partner just finished a degree and had COVID in the middle of all of it. Mm-hmm. So the the studying in different sites and completely finding ways around everything. Yep. I can I can I the the, the visual picture is there. <laughs> So the earthquake happened and the college was rebuilt, which does seem miraculous, especially in the the amount of time. But fast forward a little bit, amongst all these other things you're doing, in 1998, I believe it was, you start this parallel life as a photographer.
1: You're missing a chapter. After the earthquake, the trustees said to us, you are very tired, in effect. Why don't you go away for a while? Because it was exhausting. And Part of the six months we spent in a wonderful town in Mexico called San Miguel de Allende. It was just a very remarkable time. When I got back, I quit all my jobs and settled down to write the book that was in me, not a book of other people's thoughts, my own and what I really had to write. And that was such a big deal words fail. Since then, there have been three other books of writing and two books of photography. So my saying, wait a minute, you're not the woman who does everything. You are, in the broadest sense, and this includes being a writer, you're an artist. And this is what you're supposed to be doing. So the earthquake changed pretty much everything.
0: I love that it's a natural disaster. (laughs) (laughs) That literally obliterated buildings, a campus, and obliterated your vision of what you should be doing in your life and restructured it as you're an artist.
1: Mm -hmm. I've always said I don't really believe in turning points. There are certain kinds of prescribed structures, act one, act two, act three. Life is more of a continuum. That was a turning point, the earthquake, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I still very much kept up my life with the school but I was not the person who did everything. I spent a very long time on the first book, which I'm I'm very proud of. And if you could carry something around in the world, and it was in front of you, and you said, that's me. You don't have to know me, but that's me. That first book is me. And it took a long time to write and a long time to get published. And there were lots of things along the way that were difficult, It's a book about a very personal story, but it is intercut with a story from neurology. And so I learned a lot about neurology. It's intercut with the story of a woman who lost all her capacity to feel in 1901. And that's mostly the story of my mother who felt what wasn't there. She had a phantom limb. And so it was about feeling what's not there not being able to feel what is there, and what her daughter had to find out more about this condition in order to help her. And so it's a very short book. I apprenticed myself briefly to the head of the somatosensory lab at UCLA. I learned about pain and the neurology of it. I didn't want to come up with a metaphor, which is what the book works toward, although I never say it, and that is the phantom limb is the human condition. We all have something missing and we feel it's still there.
0: In the sense of that metaphor, I think I'm going back to you saying a blanket title of artist, but do you think that's why so many of us long to create is because of something missing. And maybe it's not as, like you said, as literal as a phantom limb. It is a metaphor, but is it something that's somewhere in our heart, our minds, our, our psychology, that there is something missing? So we want to create that. We want something else.
1: I think that is true for many people, many, probably many of the listeners today, tonight. I I think that the simplest way that I've ever found to say this is a line that's attributed to the French filmmaker, Jean Vigo, many years ago. And he said, for me, making films is like an itch that I have to scratch. Mm -hmm. And that's so simple. But it's so profound because you think you can get rid of that itch and you make something and there's that itch again and there it is again. And little by little, it becomes who you are if you decide to, you can't follow an itch, but sustain it as a way of life. So that's the next thing people have to choose. Are you going to sustain what it is that's in you.
0: How often are you going to scratch that itch and how important is it it to you to keep that itch scratched? Because I do feel like, as I was saying earlier, choosing the responsible quote unquote path, sometimes you deny that itch for such a long time until it becomes just unbearable and you have to scratch it.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's a hard way to go because unbearable is not fun. and I think, No, 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 no. And I also think that one needs to hold on to the internal vision of that no matter what you're doing, no matter how much time you have or don't have, no matter how much you want to deny it. There has to be a place that says in you, that's not really who I am, whatever I'm doing now. There's something else. And as long as that something else remains alive. Yes, And so you asked about photography.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the first part of my chat with Janet. We'll be back next week for more about Janet's photography career and what she sees for her next chapter. The second chapter is just getting started. So your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and is telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.